0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, good morning, 11. Nice to see you here in person. If you're online with us, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, You're actually the real Broncos fans. Didn't know if you knew that. When they play at 11 this late in the season and we're out of the playoffs, the real fans don't watch. Because it's like, well, that's it. That's it. Doing something else, like worshiping Jesus, right? So God bless you. Uh, I believe there will be a blessing for you in eternity. Uh, Hey, good to be with you. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles if if you have them. I hope you do. Let's open to Matthew chapter 2. You can open a phone or a tablet to Matthew 2. If you're online with us, you can Google search that, or there's a little Bible app on our online platform. You can open that up. We're going to be in the English Standard Version. Uh, If you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, as you're turning there, just, I'll just make my, my thesis statement right off the bat uh, this morning. Christmas is complicated. Christmas is, it's complicated, this, this thing that we are kind of in right now, okay? I think we want Christmas to be the most wonderful time of the year, but often it's the most complicated time of the year, Right? I mean, if we're just honest, and I know this is church, it's no place to be honest, but like, if we're honest, church, the, the Christmas thing is, is, here's some reasons why it's complicated, okay? First, Christmas is long. Is this thing getting longer? Like, what's happening to Christmas that is, I mean, do you realize it used to be 12 days? There's a song about it, right? Like, it used to be 12 days, and we were done. Throw that tree out. Get it in the garbage. This thing is now months long. It's a season. They call it the season, Right, the flu season and the Christmas season; those are the seasons. There's, I mean, it's it's a full like like a quarter of your year is spent building up to this event. I mean, that sounds a bit crazy. It's it's long. This thing is long. Okay. Uh, also, it's messy. Christmas is messy. If you have young kids, it's legitimate, like legitimately messy. But uh, but it's it's also like relationally at times pretty messy. Like I I I, I mean with like family and and get-togethers and planning and like, oh no, these two don't get along so we can't sit them next to each other, right? Like we can't put them next to each other or else it's gonna be Trump this and Biden that and face masks this and, you know, religious freedoms that and this guy wants to save the whales and this guy hates every whale that's ever been created and so we can't put them together in the same room. How are we gonna do Christmas this year? Right, it's, it's, it's kind of messy and, and, and then it's expensive. Christmas is expensive. Gonna get an, a witness from anybody, right? Like, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing because you're buying decorations. God knows you didn't have enough last year. You needed more this year, right? So you got to spend some more money on some stuff. You got to buy food, like extra food. Now I'm all for that. Like take, I'll spend all my money on the the, the prime rib for, for Christmas. I'm, I'm liking that. Uh, you're buying gifts, right? And half the gifts that you buy for people aren't the right gifts, right? Because they she wanted the 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 yellow care bear instead of the pink one. And and he wanted the the baby Yoda that was like a robot, not the one that was plush. And, and she wanted the brown boots, not the black boots. And he, w- well, he just bought all of the gifts that he put on his list for himself three days before Christmas. And so, you know, he's impossible to shop for anyway. Like he's ruined Christmas. It's expensive, right? You got to take out like a second mortgage to make this thing the most jolly time of the year, right? It's It's just, it's complicated. And... It, it, it's, it's long, it's messy, it's expensive, there's drama, it's Kevin, look what you did, you little jerk, right? It's, it's save the neck for me, Clark, right? Like it's just, it's, it's complicated, this stuff. And that's, you, you realize, everything I just talked about, that's just the, what we've done to it. That's just the complications that we have kind of overlaid onto Christmas. That's our stuff that we bring to the table. But, but when I say that Christmas is complicated, I'm also talking about the OG Christmas, Right, the original christmas what w- wasn't holly and jolly right it wasn't the ivy and the holly and it wasn't like 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 it was complicated back then i mean mary and joseph okay we're we're not going to talk about this at length today but they had to walk 100 miles to bethlehem to pay a, a tax in person like a tax bill they had to go in person and pay it can you imagine if you had to do that if you had to go to your hometown to pay taxes can you imagine if 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 e-file didn't exist how awful your April would be? I mean, it would just be crazy. I mean, I'm from, I'm from uh, Fairfax, Virginia. That's where I was born, Fairfax, Virginia. Can you imagine if I had to hoof there every spring, 1,500 miles to pay my, I already hate paying taxes. Can you imagine if you had to go do it in person? It's crazy. Not, not to mention that Mar- Mary's pregnant and not like, oh, are you pregnant? Like you're glowing. Like, <laughs> like that kind of pregnant, like very pregnant, on a donkey, walking through the desert pregnant, Okay. God really could have made this thing less complicated. I'm convinced of it. I can think of one thing that God could have done uh, that he chose not to do, but he should have maybe, okay? I won't question him because he's the almighty maker of heaven and earth, but God could have made this thing a lot simpler if he had just reserved a room for them in a hotel, just like a room. I mean, he had thousands of years to plan this thing. You'd think he could have just saved one room in Bethlehem, right? Right? It's not like he was shocked. It's not like he wasn't aware of what was going on. It's not like he looked down and was like, oh my goodness, Mary's pregnant. They're in Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the end. What are we going to do? That's not what happened. I mean, it's just, God even made this thing complicated. Christmas is complicated. But then to complicate things all the more, in our four chapters of Christmas narrative in the gospels, Matthew ends his passage with, this story that we're gonna look at today. And if it's not complicated enough, this one ratchets it up a notch for us all. Um, The end of Matthew's account, the way that his Christmas story ends is not how we want our family Christmas to end in in like a week and a half, okay? Nobody is happy. Nobody's festive. There's there's no holly jolly Christmas, okay? It's not God bless us, everyone. Like that's that's not how Matthew's account of Christmas ends. Ends. Actually, the way that it ends is very dark, much, much darker and much, much more complicated. And frankly, uh, this one doesn't get nearly the airtime in churches during Advent as, it, as it's other story. Like, like you hear about shepherds a lot. You hear about wise men a lot. You hear about baby Jesus in the manger a lot. You don't hear a lot about this story, but I think it has something for us today and actually for us this Christmas season. So uh, Matthew chapter two is where we're gonna be. I kind of wanted to skip over this. This has been a hard sermon for me this week. So I kind of wanted to skip over this, but uh, that's not how we do here. So here we go. Matthew chapter two. Let's look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, the day that they're talking about there is the wise men, which we covered last week. So the wise men have visited Jesus in Bethlehem. They've seen him. They've given him the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, uh, this end to the Christmas story kind of turns from the wise men and baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. I mean, Joseph's in the story, but the main character now kind of turns to this guy that we were introduced to last week named Herod. Okay, Herod. Uh, And and here's a quick bio of Herod. Uh, Herod, uh, we met him last week in 37 BC. Uh, He is appointed as king of Judea. Well, it's, he, he's not actually given the title king. He's more like the governor of Judea, but, but his, the, the real king in the Roman Empire is Caesar. So he's not really like a king. He just kind of becomes a like governor of this area. Rome is really who's in charge. And so Herod, though he is king of this area or governor of this area, he lives in this strange tension historically, uh, we know about him. He lives in the fear of the people above him, the Roman empire, because they can come in anytime they want and do whatever they want. He is not sovereign over Judea, Rome is. And so he's afraid of the uppity ups around him, but the people below him don't like him or respect him either. So he's kind of got this strange tension going on. You see, it was him who called himself king of the Jews. That wasn't the title given to him. That's the title he self-imposed, King of the Jews. That was his favorite title for himself. But the reality is he's not even a, a Jew. He was actually half Jewish at that point. And so his reign lived in a constant state of turmoil and it was always threatened. So historically, we know these things about Herod. There were multiple assassination attempts on his life, okay? including one from his own son who tried to poison him. You need family counseling if that happens, right? It's not a good family. In his paranoia that we've already talked about, here's, here's his rap sheet. He killed his mother-in-law, which, you know, I love my mother-in-law, but I can see how somebody you know might consider this. <laughs> Mary, watch out, poison coming your way. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> he killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed... Two of his nephews, he killed his wife, and then he killed three of his sons. This is the kind of guy that is king of the Jews, okay? Uh, At the end of his life, Herod actually, uh, we have a record of this, he gave a mandate that on the day that he died, he wanted all of the Jewish noblemen in the region where he was at to also be killed so that there would be genuine mourning on the day that he died. Now, thank the Lord, they didn't actually, like he was dead. So they couldn't like enforce that. And so they didn't, okay? Praise the Lord for that. But I mean, this is just giving you a picture of this guy, okay? This is Herod, okay? And now in Matthew chapter two, where we're at, he's been reigning in Judea for about 30 to 35 years, about three decades, he's been king in this area. And he doesn't know who's gonna be his successor, He's killed off half of his kids, right? He doesn't know who's going to be his successor. I'm imagining he's starting to think about his legacy and he's not sure what's going to happen to his kingship, his, his kingdom, okay? When all of a sudden, a bunch of wise men show up from the east saying, we hear there's a new king of the Jews that's been born. Where is he? And this throws Herod into a tizzy. Like it just throws him. I mean, and you can see why based on the character that he is. And that's where we left off last week. Now, where we picked up this week is the, the, the wise men. They leave from worshiping the Christ child. And then Joseph has a dream. Now, dreams are very important in this story. Joseph has a dream. The Lord appears to him in the dream and tells him to flee to Egypt. Egypt. Get out of Israel, flee to Egypt. There's urgency in this dream. We know because it says that Joseph packed up his kid and left in at night. Like either that night or at night under the cover of darkness, they get out of town because Jesus is in danger. His life is in danger. Now, Egypt, if you know your Old Testament, it might hearken back some disple- like some unpleasant memories, right? If you know your Old Testament, Egypt doesn't seem to be the place you would wanna go if you're a Jew, right? I mean, that's where... The Israelites were slaves, right? In Egypt. Do you remember this? And, and isn't that where Moses had to lay some like plague smackdown on Pharaoh for not letting his people go? Have you seen the movie, right? Charlton Heston, like that's the, the image there. That is correct. Egypt, Egypt is that place and has always kind of been a foil to God's people. But at this time in history, Egypt is actually a perfect place for sanctuary for this family. Okay, so here's what we know about Egypt at this point in time. Egypt is now a part of the Roman Empire. It wasn't originally, but then Julius Caesar uh, connected with Cleopatra, and then it became a part of the Roman Empire. And, and, and now that, that, that segment of the empire, Egypt, is actually outside of Judea. It's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Okay, so it's outside of where Herod could get them. What's more... At, at this point, there's a large population of Jews who live in Egypt, because after the Babylonian uh, exile, many Jews were, di- were just dispersed all across the Roman Empire. And there's uh, one scholar thinks that there's almost uh, upwards of a million Jews living in Egypt at this time. So there was a community of kind of Jewish-friendly people in Egypt. And then finally, Egypt was actually the closest place for this family to flee because it's only about 75 miles. Egypt's border is only about 75 miles away from Bethlehem. So it was a close but far enough away kind of move. So it's outside of Herod's reach, it's Jewish friendly, and it's relatively close. Now I know that's a lot of history to kind of get our minds on. But so let me let me pause right here and make my first point from this text about why I think Christmas is complicated, both ours and the original Christmas. Because we we believe, and I believe this, I think you believe this, we want Jesus to, to bring peace to our lives. I mean, one of the names of Jesus is Prince of Peace. We want the peace that God has for us. But what we see in the Christmas story is that Jesus actually brings strife. He brings strife. And I think we see a clear principle here, and then it expands into the rest of the scriptures. The coming of Christ not only solves a lot of problems, but it actually creates a lot of problems as well. Jesus does bring peace, but, but Jesus also brings strife. So my story is that I'm a first-generation Christian, Okay, like I, I am a first-generation Christian in my family. What that means is that I wasn't raised in church. I wasn't really raised in the faith. Uh, we, we just weren't. Okay, my mom and my brother, we, the three of us, we actually kind of all became Christians about the same time, about 20 years ago. We kind of all became Christians. Uh, but, but our family, we're not like church folk. Right? Like we don't have history. Like I wasn't going to Sunday school you know, as, a, as a baby. I, 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 didn't get, you know, I didn't have those kinds of bad, no VBS in my past. You got that? Okay. Uh, so so I, my, my generation, we're the first generation of Christians really in my family. But what that means is that sometimes, sometimes things can get a little bit awkward or at, at, at the worst times, they can get very heated and divisive. Like sometimes relationally, with my family, because of Jesus, there's some strife. There's some strife there. Like I talk about my dad a fair amount. I love my dad. My dad, to my knowledge, is not a believer in Jesus, but, uh, but I love him. I've got a great relationship with him. He watches some of these sermons So, dad. If you watch this, I love you, okay? Uh, that, that's, that's, that's true. Uh, but I often wonder 20 years ago, what was going on in his head when my mom and my brother and myself all became Christians, became born again Christians. And all of a sudden my dad's family was very different from the family that he had sought to create, right? Like, like I wonder if my dad was like, Hey, what kind of, what kind of freaky cult just got his claws on my, on my family? Like what happened? They weren't going to church on Sundays and now they're going to church every Sunday. They're going to church Wednesdays too. They're doing all this stuff. Like I didn't marry an overly religious woman. And now I've got this wife who's, who's a Christian, who's a religious freak in some ways. And, and, and I didn't raise my kids to, to be a part of this stuff. Like Jesus just kind of stepped in and really brought some strife. He kind of messed up my, from my dad's perspective, our family, be my guess. And that's all been okay. Like we are still a tight family. We still love each other, but but Jesus, yeah, he did bring some peace into our lives, but it also created some real strife in our family. And not just our immediate family, our extended family. I mean, goodness. I mean, somebody, seriously, if Jesus, it, he brings strife into our families. I don't know if you have any of this going on in your life, but, but I, I, I can hear people say these things like, oh, you're a Christian now? Oh, you became a Christian? You're a born again Christian? So what does that mean? No more fun? No more fun for us, Huh? We can't do what we used to do. What does that mean? What are you a part? Are you a fanatic? You're a religious fanatic. What does this mean about your politics? You got to swing one way or the other now? Hey, your cousin's gay. What are you going to do about that relationship? Christian, right? What does that mean about your morals? Like, are you just going to judge me now that you're a Christian? You're going to try and convert me now that you're a Christian? You're just going to try and you know, shoehorn Jesus into every conversation that we have. You're going to evangelize me now? I mean, in many ways, yes, becoming a Christian brings peace. But in many other ways, Jesus, loyalty to Jesus, following Jesus can sometimes feel like moving out of calm waters and into some choppy seas. You do get a radical peace with God when you follow Christ, but you also get immense strife and war in your life. It happened in the first Christmas and it happens today. Listen, a lot of things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. And a lot of things that never bothered you before you were a Christian, all of a sudden are really important to you. See, Jesus brings strife. Now, he does bring peace, okay? He does bring peace to us. He brings a peace of conscience, okay? Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's a peace of conscience, right? You and God, you're okay. No more condemnation for your sins from the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's a peace of conscience. But Jesus never promises a peace of circumstance, There's no biblical promise that says, hey, guess what? You follow me, you love me, everything's gonna be awesome. It's smooth sailing from here on out. In fact, the coming of Christ not only solves problems, man, it creates serious problems. Jesus brings strife and we're gonna see it show up mighty fast in our text. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, because they are no more. So now you're like, oh, I get why pastors don't talk about this during Christmas. Right? These themes that we like for Christmas are like themes of peace and joy, hope and light and angels and babies and tidings of comfort and joy. Right? Those are the messages we like. Give me more of that. That's the kind of Christmas I want. All right? Frankly, that's what I like as well. Uh, These are the themes that that Jesus just gave us, okay? Slaughter, flight, destroy, brutality, death, weeping, lamentation. I mean, these are not Hallmark Christmas card themes. Send the slaughter of the infant card to your grandma. See how that goes over, right? Bizarre. Give us the other ones, pastor. Give us the holly and the ivy. We like that. Don't give us this story. This is why a lot of pastors skip over this text, but you see, when Herod finds out that, that the wise men have played a trick on him and they didn't come back to him, they sneak away. He, he moves forward with his plan to get rid of the king. New king of the Jews is on the scenes. Forget about it. And he doesn't even know really when and where. He has to ascertain kind of a general, he, he kind of plays the, the over-under, essentially. And he just says, hey, he's got to be around two years old, so we're going to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. And again, infanticide is not great fodder for like Christmas carols. No one's singing that song with like a bell choir behind them. Now, uh, what we know about Bethlehem, we talked about this last week a little bit, it's this ghetto little town, sketchy little town, uh, very small, very kind of off the beaten path. So this massacre, based on what we know of like historical population data, is that this probably would have been maybe 20 to 30 boys massacred. So it's not a huge number, but it's still a horrible part of the Christmas story. I mean, claymate this one, that's freak you out, Right. Now, I want to I extrapolate a second point from this, uh, and it's actually really helped me. Uh, Tim Keller points out in this passage uh, that when the wise men come to Jerusalem, when the wise men show up looking for the child, they don't say that they're on a hunt to find the Savior. They're not looking for the Messiah. They're not looking for the savior. They're not looking for the Christ. They don't say, hey, we're looking for a savior who's gonna meet our needs and who will take care of our problems and who's gonna like take away our guilt and shame and deal with our sin issue with God. That's not what they say. But back actually in in chapter two, verse two, it says, where is he who has been born king? And Keller points out that that is the impetus of this entire story being a problem. Okay that's what stirred up this whole event because when when a king shows up in a land where there's already a man claiming to be king you know there's going to be war war will ensue from that if they had shown up and said hey we're looking for a savior he posits that none of this massacre would have happened because that would not have been a threat to Herod but when there's another king being proposed look out and and frankly This is why I think Jesus actually brings strife. And it's also the next reason why I think Christmas is so complicated because Jesus doesn't come only to be our Savior, He comes to be our King. Jesus is King. It'd be much cleaner if He were just Savior. If He would just save us from our sin and make our life a little bit better, it'd be much cleaner be much easier. But he claims kingship. Jesus as king is what led to the massacre of these innocent children. It's one of the main reasons that there is strife. Because on a whole, people are cool with a savior. People are okay with Jesus as savior, but, but don't you dare try and claim lordship over me. Don't you dare say that you're king. Yes, save me, Jesus, but, but don't you be my king. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, this is a paraphrase, but Dallas Willard said something to the effect of, a lot of people want God to help them, but very few people want God to be God. <laughs> a lot of people want God to, God, help me help my marriage, help my family, help my finances, help my my, my guilt, my shame, help me with, but very few want God to be God. Yeah, Jesus does claim to be your savior. Listen, I don't want to take that off the, the table. Jesus does claim to be your savior. He does say things like in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says really nice things that are kind of savior-esque and that are very much a help to us. But the, the problem is that's not all Jesus said. Okay? He said. He also said things like Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? These are hard sayings of Jesus, maybe not as Savior, but definitely as King. Jesus doesn't just say He's your Savior, He says He's your King, and that's complicated. It's complicated because even after you surrender your life to Jesus, even after he becomes, you've accepted Christ, you became a Christian, he is your savior, he is your your king, he is your Lord. Like even after that happens, there's still a part of you that the Bible calls your flesh. Like there's still a part of you, even after you submit to Christ, there's a part of you called the flesh that to the very end of your days will always be fighting against and bristling against Jesus' claim as king over you. You will always have the flesh to battle with. And Herod is a model for us of kind of what's going on inside each one of us. See, when a new king comes to town, old kings start to rage. And listen, you were king over you until Jesus claimed his lordship over you. And now there's kings at war. Like each one of us has like a little Herod inside of us. We really do. We have this like little sovereign king who thinks he's the king, who thinks he is over and in control and rages against the king of kings trying to claim lordship over you. And and, and listen, your king of kings offers you salvation, but he does it by claiming sovereignty over your entire being. It's actually illustrated in the remainder of this this passage, in the remainder of the Christmas story. Let's look at this. We'll finish this up, verses 19 to the end. You'll see it, I think. See, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. There's another dream, okay? Saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the, the, the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod dies, okay? Uh, probably a couple years later, they may have been in Egypt for three to five years. That's kind of the best guess at this point. But, uh, but Joseph has another dream, a second dream. In this dream, the angel says, you can go, you can get out of Egypt, you can t- take your, your kid and go back home. Uh, and, and, and then Joseph, he just does it. He gets right up, uh, heads out, obeys God's word to him. But as they are headed back to Israel, it says they're headed back to Israel and they're they, they planning on going back to Judea. They're planning on going back to either Bethlehem or Jerusalem. They're planning on going back to the, the major kind of metropolis, me, me, uh, metropolis center of Israel. This is like the, the city. This is the best place in Israel to live. This is where any young family would want to be, okay? And so they head there, and, and, and uh, Joseph hears that Archelaus is now the ruler of Judea. Now, Archelaus uh, is one of Herod's sons that didn't get killed. I don't know how many sons this guy had, but this is one that didn't die. And apparently uh, he's now in charge and Archelaus is disliked because he is very similar to his father. He is cruel. We have a record actually of uh, Jews sending a delegation to Rome uh, complaining that Archelaus had massacred 3,000 people near the temple in Jerusalem. And so like father, like son, this is not a good guy. This, this bloodline is, is pretty uh, poor. So, so Joseph has another dream in this passage and the, they, they change their plans. The dream, the, the, the Lord tells him to go back to Galilee, the district of Galilee where there's less danger. And so they head back to where they started, Nazareth. So Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth They get called to Bethlehem to pay a tax. Jesus is born. They flee to Egypt. And then they're trying to go back to either Bethlehem or or, or Jerusalem. They want to live in Judea. They want to raise their family in Judea. But God says, "Uh uh-uh, I want you back in Nazareth so that my son will be called a Nazarene. But that's not part of their plan. Joseph and Mary's plan was not to go back to Nazareth. Their plan was to be in a better city. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? Well, we know that Nazareth was small and worse than Bethlehem. If there could be, there was, it was Nazareth, right? Backwards town, Nazareth. People call it like, you're you're like from the sticks. You're like a hick if you're from Nazareth. It was so popular that they would call people Nazarenes who were kind of like backwoods in their own mind, right? So you you remember in John chapter one, when Nathanael hears that Jesus shows up and we found the, the Christ, we found the Messiah, It's Jesus from Nazareth. And he says, remember what he says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like that place stinks. How could the Savior come from Nazareth? Again, what I think we're seeing in this last bit of the story is the kingship of Jesus, even over the Holy Family. Jesus isn't only the savior who gets you eternal life, but he is king over your entire life, especially and including the details. Jesus is king over where you live. Jesus is king over where you work. He is king over what you do with your money. He is king over what you do with your time. Jesus claims kingship over every aspect of your life. He is king over all. But we are often like, hey, buddy, thanks for the salvation. Hey, that whole cross thing. Yeah, thank you. I'd rather not pay for my own sins. Hey, thank you, Jesus, for helping me out, for making my life better. But don't you go looking at my bank account. I've got plans for my life. I've got, hey, buddy, like I appreciate the saviorness, but listen, don't you be going and messing with every detail of my life. Like we love Jesus as savior, but we reject him as king in almost every instance in our lives. It is unbelievably difficult to submit to him as Lord but this isn't a pick and choose. It's not like Mary and Joseph were like, hey, listen, God, we just gave birth to a baby that we're not even sure where it came from. (laughs) Maybe we had to flee to Egypt. Like, I feel like we've done our bit now. Can't we just live where we wanna live? He's like, no. He needs to be called a Nazarene. Jesus is king. This is the Christmas story, church, that we far too often miss this time of year. The real Christmas message is this. When Jesus comes into your life, he will not come in the way you think. He will not only come to bring you peace, but he'll also bring strife. It's not a great selling point. He will not only come as your savior. He will also insist on being your king. Listen, for some of us, this might be the most complicated Christmas we've ever been a part of, right? Like, Like maybe this year, this Christmas is more complicated than any we've ever, 2020, okay? To cap off the year, Christmas, complicated, okay? For some of us, 2020 is gonna be the first Christmas Since the significant loss of a family member, there'll be families this year who will not be having Christmas without, uh, who will be having Christmas for the first time without one of their children present. There are those who will be having Christmas this year without a spouse for the first time. There are those who will be alone, I mean, literally all by themselves for the first Christmas ever. And if you're here and this Christmas feels vastly more complicated than it ever has before, I just want to, I want you to lean into the first Christmas. I want you to lean into Matthew chapter two. Jesus comes not only to bring peace, but strife. And yet the only way to get his peace is to embrace the strife. And, and Jesus, he not only comes to be your savior, but to be your king. And hear me, he will not be one without the other. You cannot have him as savior and not have him as king. And listen, if we've learned anything in 2020, it's, it's that it's dangerous. Like the world is actually a dangerous place. It's a dangerous time to live. It actually always has been, I hope you see that in the text. It always has been, but it just feels more acute this year in 2020, the danger that's out there. And listen, you are not guaranteed a hallmark Christmas this year. But through the strife that Jesus brings, you can actually find peace. And through the kingship of Christ, there is salvation. And all the complications of Christmas will only be apparent complications. Even Matthew chapter 2 is only an apparent complication because this baby who's on the run for his life in his infancy will grow up to be a man. And that man will grow and die on a cross. And that death, the complication, the apparent complication of Jesus' death, the death of the innocent lamb, will lead to life. And that strife will lead to peace. And, and those who bow the knee to the king will also find that he is their savior. So December 13th, the question is, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Because here, here are his words for you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. Merry Christmas. Next week, we will be preaching the actual birth of Jesus story. I chose to go out of order because I didn't want to preach this on December 20th. You're welcome. Okay. Let's pray together. Well, Father, this is a hard text. This is a hard passage. Everything in me wants to to zip over this and move into baby Jesus in the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and the worship and the lights and Christmas and candles and all. And yet this is here. And we affirm and believe that every single word of scripture is God breathed and useful and it's purposeful and that you've put it here for us. And so, so we take this difficult text and Lord we want to chew on it. And we want to internalize it. We want to work it deep into our hearts. God as beautiful as this season is, it's also very complex. It's full of heartache. It's full of broken promises. It's full of Relational strife, it's full of pain. And yet we have a high priest who is able to sympathize, as the writer of Hebrews says. Our very own Lord and Savior was on the run for his life. And yet, Lord, that apparent complication was, was for more. So, Father, whatever our thing is, whatever the baggage is, whatever the complication is this year, whatever the, the danger, the, the massacre that's going on, the pandemic of our lives right now, or whatever that is, we pray we trust you through that strife to bring peace. And, Lord, as we submit to you as king, Lord, that that, that, that meaning of you being our savior will only increase evermore. God, use this message, use this passage of, of scripture, the story of a flight to Egypt to, to deepen our love and our surrender to you. Father, thank you for this. We pray that it, that it changes us, that it matures us, that it takes us deeper with you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.